Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is, well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel. So if you've been with us over the last 40 weeks or so, you have heard your fill of the Gospel of John. We are making headway, folks, as we head into the Advent season. And actually, we're gonna take four weeks off of our study in the Gospel of John. But up until this point, what we've seen in this book is two identifiable sections within the book. In the first 12 chapters, the author is putting together what he is identifying as the book of signs. All throughout these initial 12 chapters, there are signs that are uh, put in place to identify for the readers who Jesus is, what's so important about him and what the audience is supposed to be understanding about Jesus, namely with his relationship to God the Father. This is unique in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't really do this as much. John is very much shaped theological retelling of who Jesus is. In other words, the author has an ax to grind so that people will know and be able to identify who Jesus is. One of the literary frames that he's using for this is, as I mentioned, the book of signs in, in the first 12 chapters, and then the timing slows down dramatically. In the first 12 chapters, we have about three years worth of Jesus's ministry. In the last 10 or 12 chapters, we have about six days in the life of Jesus. And the time has slowed down to a grinding halt. And as we've been in John 13, we've started to see some of these uh, routines in Jesus's ministry that are coming to fruition, where he is identifying himself as the servant, maybe even the suffering servant, tapping into some language from the book of Isaiah. But in the beginning of John chapter 13, he takes on the servant act of washing the feet of the disciples as they are gathered around for a meal. We're gonna be continuing uh, this line of thought as Jesus is gathered with his main crew, his disciples, the night before his um, betrayal and arrest and ultimately leading into the crucifixion. What scholars note these last 10 or 12 chapters, they, they identify them as the book of the passion because this is all focusing around Jesus' death and ultimately his resurrection. The author has been bringing us to this point and now they're gonna spend a lot of time unpacking why this is important and what it is that we should be learning in this um, set of texts. Now, as these folks are in the, the upper room, if you will, getting ready to have this farewell discourse by Jesus, he's launching into a set of teaching where he is going to identify his betrayer. Remember, this is after all of the feet of the disciples have been washed, and now Jesus launches in to this set of teaching. It says, after he had said these things, he was deeply disturbed and testified. He says, I assure you, 
one of you will betray me. His disciples looked at each other, confused about which of them he was talking about. One of the disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, was at Jesus' side. Simon Peter nodded at him to get him to ask Jesus who he was talking about. Leaning back toward Jesus, the disciple asked, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread once I have dipped into the bowl. Then he dipped the piece of bread and gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. After Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. No one sitting at the table understood why Jesus said this to him. Some thought that since Judas kept the money bag, Jesus told him, go, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So when Judas took the bread, he left immediately. The word of God for the people of God. Now, as we see here in John's gospel, I want to really focus in on the literary artistry of John's, what I'm calling his shaped gospel. A lot of times, if you have church history, the way that you approach your Bible is this is straightforward historical retelling of who Jesus is. And we might even think that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell relatively the same story. However, just like any storytelling that takes place, the authors have some sort of agenda behind even the historical things that they are are telling. I don't want you to be asking the question tonight, did this happen, so much as why is this story being presented in this way? The author of the Gospel of John is so articulate in how this happens. I've been racking my brain all evening to try to think of a cultural reference to help us understand where this text is going tonight, and the only thing that I can put out before you is basically the entire framework of how I met your mother. Fans of the show in the room, the finale is one of the most atrocious things I've ever seen uh, in, in TV history. But if you like good situational comedy, How I Met Your Mother is one of those great shows. But from the very beginning of this show, it's almost like taking you to the end. But through eight seasons or so, it weaves you in and out to get to that final thing. This is what John is doing throughout his gospel. One thing that we've been looking at time and time again to see how this, this story is, is shaped for the author's purposes is to see the chronology of Jesus' last couple of days. In the synoptic gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the timing of Jesus' death is placed um, on Passover. We have this last supper where everyone is in the room and he's talking to his disciples and he's even initiating what we will observe later saying, this is my body that's broken for you. This is my blood that's shed for you. They're having this meal as a Passover meal leading into Jesus's death on Passover. In the gospel of John, however, everything shifts back a day. Because what the author of John wants you to see is that Jesus is the Passover lamb. At the time when the lambs would be sacrificed, this is where John wants Jesus to be on the cross saying, it is finished. This is beautifully shaped storytelling to let the audience know 
who Jesus is and why his death is important. And for John, it looks very different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in this story tonight, we also see how the author is shaping this retelling to get across a really huge theological point. Now, I want us to see that in this text that talks about a dinner, many of us have ideas of what dinner parties look like, right? Uh, Scott Malone and I have been talking for the last month or so, like we just really want to get a big long table and take it outside and then just eat a wintry fall type meal in the middle of my yard with turkey and other things that you guys enjoy to eat. Thanksgiving outside, thank you, Kayla. Scott's wife, Kayla, she knows the details. You might have other ideas of what this dinner party looks like for you, but if we go back to the first century Jewish culture, I doubt that we understand or have many frames of reference for what this dinner party may have looked like. Now, some people would say that what happens in this upper room as Jesus is gathered with his people is that they are observing this feast, which some people note, this is really cool, some people say that for a Passover meal, which John isn't describing here. I'm sorry, this is getting confusing. But they would say that they would uh, lay down to demonstrate the freedom that they have from their oppressors. So they're, they're ripping off of a Roman custom called the triclinium. I believe that I'm pronouncing that correctly. I was on YouTube today hitting some pretty sketchy how do you pronounce triclinium uh, videos. They do exist, but I don't know if their Latin is any better than mine, but here, here we are nonetheless. What happens here is you have this U-shaped table um, and you've got these couches surrounding and the guests of the meal kind of lay down and recline as this table of food is out in front of them and they kind of dip in and, and like typical Middle Eastern, it's not like forks and knives and, and plates. It's like you take the hummus and you, you, or you take the pita and you dip it in the hummus. Thank you. All of my friends that just looked at me like, you know this, you can do it. <laughs> Find it. There it is. Yes, pita. That's the one. Um, Side note, I didn't like hummus when I was traveling over in Israel. Somebody throw stuff at me right now because that's, that's shameful. So what I did every day is they would bring this pita bread and I would make myself a peanut butter and jelly pita sandwich. I know how young and stupid was I. Okay, but anyway. Um, so there's this meal. It's this U-shaped table. We've got other images. This is obviously a, a rendering of what may have happened. We've got some, some intense couches here. And clearly, this is not what's taking place as Jesus finds this makeshift sort of place for his disciples to eat and for him to go through this foot-washing ritual and for them to eat the meal. But most commentators would say that as this is unfolding, they're kind of mimicking this Roman triclinium where you have three different tables that are attached together in a U-shape. And at the top here in this table are the seats of prominence. You have people that are the most important, if you will, of uh, the dinner party. Or if you go to someone's house, you might see the host sitting at the head of the table and the opposite end of that table. Here we have more um, sort of ancient mosaics that, that kind of refer to, to this sort of style of eating in which people would be um, reclined. Now, because we're sitting here in, note, the triclinium, yes, now it's all coming together. I'm gonna need some volunteers to help me demonstrate what's happening here. So Josh Hill's gonna be one, and Josh Hill's actually gonna play the role of Jesus this evening. Let's give Josh a hand. Come on up, Josh. 
And I want you to lay down. Like, like towards them, yes, because oh, this, this is the table. So this is the head table here, and you guys are off to the sides like this. Now, Josh, he's old, and he's really struggling to get down here, and now he's just laying on his stomach, which is not, you ever tried to eat on your stomach? That's not what you want to do. So what you want to do is you want to roll onto your side, and you want to be on your left side. Other way, so we're going to roll that way. At some point, we'll just start doing some burpees, you know, we'll get, turn this into a workout. Okay, so Josh here is, is reclined. I'm going to huddle over him here, which is weird for all of us. <laughs> and I really don't have to. I'm just choosing to right now for the sake of it. But Josh is on his left elbow, and when Josh wants to reach the table, he's just going to use his, his right hand there, and he's going to eat whatever he's eating. Josh is the host. This is where Jesus is sitting at the head of the triclinium, at the head table, as all the disciples are flanked around him here. Now, I'm also going to need some other people because as this is happening, Jesus begins to interact with the dinner party as this is taking place. I'm sorry that you guys can't see Josh, but he's just going to hang out here for like 10, 15 minutes or so, depending on how long I decide to talk. It'll be a, it'll be a bit, okay? So, you cool? Yeah. All right. Tell me when your, tell me when your arm goes numb. Yeah. All right. So, at some point, though, Josh slash Jesus, which actually in the Greek... Joshua and Jesus, it's the same word, so, I mean, whatever. <laughs> you know, really close. Not only Josh and myself, but Jesus. Okay, um, at some point, Jesus at the dinner party says, I assure you, one of you will betray me. And it even gives some inclination as to Jesus' disposition at this time, which we'll come back to later on in the sermon. It says that Jesus is very troubled with what is happening. One other notable time in John's gospel when Jesus is troubled is when he talks to Mary of Bethany about the death of her brother and his good friend Lazarus, and it says that Jesus is moved with emotion, and he begins to weep, which is strange, right? Because Jesus knows how that story is going to end, and all my Bible readers know that as Jesus approaches the, the, the tomb of Lazarus and says, come out, he seems to know that Lazarus isn't going to stay dead, but yet Jesus is still moved with emotion. We can also tuck this away because Jesus probably knows how this story is going to pan out, but he, he's moved with emotion and he is struggling in this time and he announces to everyone at the dinner party, he says, I assure you, one of you will betray me. Now this is where the story gets strange, right? That's an odd thing for you to say at a dinner party, isn't it? Remember, your feet have just been washed. It's already a strange dinner party. And it's, they weren't washed before the appetizers rolled out. They were washed like after the main course, in between the main course and dessert. Jesus just takes it upon himself to do this servant's task. But he says, I assure you that one of you will betray me. One of the disciples, one that Jesus loved, was close to Jesus was sitting at Jesus' side at the top table of the triclinium. Brian, get up here. Now, one of these disciples in, in the Gospel of John, he's identified as the, the disciple that Jesus loved. Same thing, left side, lay down. Um, <laughs> he doesn't take on a name, so scholars don't really know who this is, although they have all sorts of different postulations as to who this disciple that Jesus loved is, but it's almost like you're, you're kind of close. 
Little spoon, big spoon is what's happening. And don't, this is an, this is an ancient Jewish society, so we don't have to go ro romantic with that because that's not happening. But this is a, a sort of a different time in which the close proximity of these two, it does demonstrate the weird word, hold on to your hats, the intimacy of the relationship that they have. Let me tell you about my best friend. Jesus and the disciple that he loved. He doesn't talk about this uh, or talk about his other disciples in this sort of way. Now, note this. N.T. Wright says that the picture we get is of a young lad, perhaps the youngest of them all. If he was indeed uh, John, the son of Zebedee, some people believe that the, the disciple who, who Jesus loved is named John, the son of Zebedee. Um, but he may have been a cousin of Jesus on his mother's side. He may not have been 20 years old. So they're saying that potentially this is a young person who doesn't pose a threat to the rest of the disciples around the table. He had looked up to Jesus all his life, had followed him with joy and devotion, if not always, yet with total understanding. And Jesus had, as we say, a special affection for him, a soft spot in his heart for the disciple that he loved. These two have a really, a really weird relationship, but it's a close relationship. And you can see that from how they're seated at this meal together. And it's gonna get even, uh, e even more strange for you two and probably for everyone watching here in a moment. Um, but just to give you more background about the disciple that Jesus loved, re remember, he's not named. He really only shows up around these last few Jerusalem stories, but he, he shows up in powerful ways. At the crucifixion, it says, Jesus's mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, they stood near the cross. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, here's your son. Little spoon, look after him. Then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later on at the, at, the, at the scene of the resurrection, it says, early in the morning of the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. This is after Jesus' crucifixion and people are going to anoint his body with spices um, to prepare him for burial, to give him the burial that he uh, should have received a few days earlier. And it says that Mary, she ran to Simon Peter to tell him that Jesus wasn't there. And she ran also to the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord from the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. And I love this. Remember, the, the author of John, he's, it's shaped, okay? So Peter and the other disciple, the one that he loves, they left the tomb and they were running together, but the other disciple ran faster than Peter and was the first to arrive at the tomb. This is funny because he wrote the book that the one that won the foot race wrote the gospel of John and he's just deciding as he's putting the last finishing touches. Mary told, you know, the one that Jesus loved and Peter that he wasn't there. And then we rushed off to the tomb and the one that Jesus loved got there first. You don't find that hilarious? This doesn't have anything to do with anything whatsoever other than this person saying, I want everyone to know from here on out that I'm faster than Peter. <laughs> Let it be known. Inspired scripture. 
Finally, in John chapter 21, Peter, you can see Peter and the disciple that Jesus loved, they had this weird relationship. Peter, this is after um, he has denied Jesus a few times and Jesus restores him on the beach um, saying, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. It's this threefold uh, reinstitution of Peter after a threefold denial of Jesus. And it says that Peter turned around and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. This was the one who had le uh, leaned against Jesus at the meal, we're gonna get there, and asked him, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw this disciple, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? What about the guy that's faster than me? And Jesus replied, if I want him to remain until I come back, what difference does that make to you? You must follow me. This is the disciple, the one that Jesus loved, who testifies concerning all the things in this book and has written them down. The one that Jesus loves, many scholars think, is the one who's behind the main traditions in the Gospel of John. And as this is happening, we've got Jesus here eating some, some good food and the, the disciple that Jesus loves sitting next to him in a place of prominence. And while this is happening, Peter off to the side in the back, Josh Revel's gonna play the, the role of Peter. He nods to get the disciple that Jesus loves attention. That's the nod. Peter is nodding to you. Notice, if everything is strategically placed, and Peter's not at the head table. What's that telling us about Peter? <laughs> well, that's a bit extreme. <laughs> he's the bastard black sheep of this group. No, he's, he's just not at the head table, which is what we need to see, but he's motioning up to Brian to get the attention of Jesus and say, hey, ask him who we're talking about here leaning back towards Jesus, and because they're so close, what the Greek actually says is, while Brian is laying down as the disciple that Jesus loves, he can just place his head on the chest of Jesus. Go ahead and do that. <laughs> now look, you stay there, and nobody can see this, but somebody should be photo-documenting this. Okay. I'm all over. Now look, N.T. Wright again says, the beloved disciple was reclining close to Jesus. They're eating this food, they're, they're at a place of prominence, and he could whisper to Jesus and hear what Jesus whispers back to him. It's one of the great pictures of friendship in all of literature, N.T. Wright says. Peter in the back somewhere saying, hey, hey, the loved one. Ask Jesus, what's going on? And Brian just softly puts his head back onto the chest of Jesus and says, hey, who is it? And Jesus can respond even in a whisper. This is getting strange, I, I, I'm sorry. He says, it's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread once I have dipped into the bowl. Remember, they're here. And again, in this cultural context, for the host of the meal to dip bread into some bowl and hand it to someone says something about the status of the person who receives the bread given to them by the host. Michael, come on up. Yes, and you'll be on this side. You might think, get on the other side of Josh, and just for the parlance of our time, now you're the big spoon. And Jesus is the little spoon, and the beloved one is the littler spoon. If this is making anyone else uncomfortable, I'm right there with you, okay? 
But what's happening is Brian's asking Jesus who it is, and Jesus says, it's the one that I'm gonna dip this bread into the bowl and give it to them. So he's got to be in close proximity. So most people would say that the person to Jesus' immediate left is the person who receives this bread. And what you might think is the person seated to the right of Jesus has the higher status. But many scholars would actually say that it's the one to Jesus' left who is Jesus' right-hand man in this scenario. We've got this punk kid who Jesus has a soft spot in his heart for, and we've got this other guy over here that some people would say because of the exposure of the back that the person on your left was like the one who could protect you. So the, the beloved disciple has asked Jesus. Jesus has answered the question. And again, we have this image of the triclinium here. The, the three people here at the head table, they take status in the room and the other disciples are flanked. Some people would say that there's, there's three people up here, Jesus being one of those three, and then cramped tables of five on either side. Uh, we don't know. Um, but we have is, is this moment here where Jesus dips the bread into the bowl and gives it to Judas, who is sitting in a place of prominence. John's gospel, shaped to communicate something about what's happening in the story. Because the image that we have of Jesus and the image that you see in classic art is like Judas off and on the side there, kind of scheming and plotting. But what seems to be the case in this story is Judas was Jesus' right-hand man who was supposed to protect him but who would actually betray him. He gave it to the one that was seated to his left. You guys can get on up and get out here because I could just leave you up here all night. Now this, yes, that's... A couple weeks ago, uh, when we first uh, launched into chapter 13... Um, I made a joke saying that, you know, you guys might want to talk about the devil because at the beginning of chapter 13, it says the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. Like the devil is playing a role in this story. And as much as I don't want to do this, I think that at least tonight, we sort of have to entertain what's going on because the text says that after Judas took the bread, Satan enters into him. Now, I know that your image of Satan right now is red tights, pitchfork, horns. Get that out of your mind and think more of uh, an accuser, um, a prosecuting attorney almost. Like the, the adversary, the accuser is now entering into Judas and is meant to show us this contrast. Craig Keener says the entrance of spirits into individuals to empower them for a task, whether good or evil, was already familiar in the Mediterranean world. More important, Satan's entrance into Judas, it contrasts starkly with the promise of God's spirit entering the other disciples. We have on Jesus' right one that he, he loved this person that would do anything for him and, and on his left in the seat of prominence is, is Judas who the, the Bible says that Satan enters into him to leave and to go betray his Lord, his, his rabbi, his teacher and we see how this, how this looks where you have one that Jesus loves here who is at 
the foot of the cross as Jesus is dying and Jesus says, behold your, your mom, mom, behold your son. There's a, there's a bond between these people. Meanwhile, Judas has gone and betrayed Jesus. There's a clear and striking contrast in these characters. And as you could expect, no one down the row here had any idea what was going on. And really the beloved disciple didn't really have any idea what was going on either. Because as Jesus says to Judas, whatever you're gonna do, do it quickly. And then everybody at the table thinks that it was completely normal for Judas just to take whatever bread that Jesus has given him and, and walk out the door to go and care for the poor. One commentator says, because that's what people do. It wasn't like a, an act of huge service. It was an everyday moment where you cared for people that didn't have what you have. So perhaps they thought that Judas was just going out to care for the poor, or maybe Judas was going out to get the, the things that they needed to celebrate the Passover. But it's odd that Jesus says, it's the person who I'm gonna dip in the bowl and give it to this person that is gonna betray me. He does that, gives it to Judas, he leaves, and everybody's sitting around saying like, who is it? I still don't know. Like they didn't see what just happened. And maybe part of that is because Judas isn't the person that you think he is. He's not the guy in the corner scheming. He's the trusted one. He's the one that you would never think would sell out Jesus. He's the one that would leave and care for the poor. And if anybody needed to get any sort of things for their Passover, their, their religious ritual, it would certainly be Judas. So even as he's going out, nobody would be thinking that this was the guy. I want us to see something here because my whole point tonight is just to see how beautifully this story is, is put together. And for those of you that were reading along as we were looking at this passage on a device or if you had an open text, you saw that I cut this passage a bit short. But if we go through this text again, I wanna lead us to this point uh, that I think is, is, is fraught with uh, importance for us. It says, after he said these things, Jesus was deeply disturbed and testified, I assure you, one of you will betray me. His disciples, they looked at each other, confused about which of them he was talking about. One of the disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, was at Jesus' side. Simon Peter nodded to him to get him to ask Jesus, who he was talking about and leaning back towards Jesus or putting his head on Jesus' chest, the disciple whispers, who is it? Jesus answered, it's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread once I have dipped into the bowl. Then he dipped the piece of bread and gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. After Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. No one sitting at the table understood why Jesus said this to him. Some thought that since Judas kept the money bag, Jesus told him, go and buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So when Judas took the bread, he left immediately. And then the author has this seemingly insignificant detail. As Judas gets up to leave the room and opens the door, the author wants us to know it was night. It was dark. As the things that have taken place here unfold, it's not just important that we understand it's nighttime. 
but there's a darkness that's taking place. And as stupid as a comparison as this is, the people that have put together How I Met Your Mother are leaving breadcrumbs all the way to an ending of that show. And the author of the Gospel of John is, is doing so as well because all throughout the first 13 chapters, they keep talking about night. If you've been with us any amount of time, you've heard me launch into these things where I say, and then Jesus gets really esoteric and starts talking about things that don't really seem to have any sort of significance as to what's going on. It's when Jesus gets really theological, when Jesus says things like, night is coming, when things take place and Jesus says, those who walk at night, they'll stumble because the light is not in them. All throughout the gospel, there's this play on light and darkness, and Jesus is really ramping it up. The light has come into the world, he says, and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. I am the light of the world, he says, but there's a darkness that's coming. And when we get to this point in John chapter 13, I believe it's in verse 30 or so, and it just simply says, and it was night. It's not just telling us that it's nighttime. The author is saying, and everything that Jesus has been talking about is beginning to spill out on the pages as the one that he trusted, the one to his left, the one at the head table of the triclinium, the one who was supposed to be trustworthy, who decides to leave and to abandon Jesus and to betray him, swings open the door and walks out into the night. There's a text in John chapter one that holds us. It's in the, the very beginning verses of, of this story, the prologue, which, which sets up the entire story where it says there's a light that shines in the darkness. And darkness will not overcome it. For the informed reader, as you get to this, this small little sentence, and it was night, everything starts to make sense. Judas leaving to betray Jesus with hints back to the beginning of the gospel saying, there is a darkness that's coming. Night is on the horizon, but it cannot and it will not overcome the light. This story that we oftentimes kind of go beyond because we know how it plays out. We think we know about Judas. We think that we know that he's like this schemer in the back who's not sitting at a place of prominence. We think that we know what's, what's unfolding, but for the author, he just wants us to see that night, while it is coming, it will not overtake the light that is breaking on the horizon. It's a story so powerful and so timeless that we can't not see its implications. The story is going somewhere. And again, just like Jesus, who knew that he would raise Lazarus from the dead, he's troubled and pained and moved with emotion. In this text, he is also troubled and pained as to the betrayal that he is facing from his friend. In whatever way we can make sense of that, I'm pretty certain that there's moments in our life when we're seated here and the person who's behind us, who we think is going to bat for us, might be the one who sells us out, might be the one who denies us and rejects us, might be the one who completely forsakes us when we need them. 
But there's a hint of the gospel even in this, that as the door is opening up into the night, the blackness and the darkness of what is about to unfold, it will not overtake Jesus. I don't want to sit here and paint this picture like, when it comes to our relationship with Jesus, you're Judas. I'm not going to go there because that's sort of intense. I do want us to see here that perhaps there's something for us to hold on to as we think about this dinner theme, as we think about the different characters who are taking up residence. And I would like to leave you with a moment of thoughtfulness with regard to how you understand this rogue Jewish rabbi who's sitting at the head of the table, who's troubled with where he's going, but he will not be deterred from the work that he has to do for us. I'm hopeful that when we get into the history of what's going on in the room, that we might be able to appreciate who Jesus is and the resonances of his life and how they mirror some of our own and how he understands where we are, and we maybe can see a glimpse of where he was, but yet we see his faithfulness even to the cross for us, and that we can be encouraged and challenged by that. Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. If you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash restoresby or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. See you next week.